you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Last week we looked at really the first sentence in uh, the book of Ephesians, verses 3 through uh, 14 encompass one sentence. Today we're going to look at the second sentence, which encompasses verses 15 to 23. Uh, Paul was known for writing very long sentences, and uh, today we're going to break it down a little bit and see what he's saying to us. This is a prayer that Paul has for the, the, churches, uh, the church in and around Ephesus. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering in you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, this is the first of two prayers that we have recorded for us in the book of Ephesians, two prayers for uh, the church, for the believers in and around Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. Uh, and he begins his prayer, or begins this section of Scripture by saying, for this reason. And he's hearkening back to what he said before when he says, for this reason. Uh, he's re referring to verses 11 and 12 where he is outlining for us uh, the spiritual blessings that come to us, and he mentions one spiritual blessing in Christ, specifically the inheritance. In verse 11 it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance. Now up to this point in chapter 1, the first uh, 14 verses, uh, or the first 12 verses, he, Paul has been speaking generally of all Christians. And then, in verse 13, he points out his reader specifically. You'll notice the change from we to you. The we changes to you. So we have obtained an inheritance. We have been chosen by God. We have been uh, redeemed by the Lord. Uh, we, we, we. And now, in verse 13, he points to the, the you. In him, you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So here we have the first part of Paul's fuel for prayer for the Ephesians. He is praying about the work of the Holy Spirit in these believers and he's, he's thinking about their grasp of this inheritance that they have been promised through Christ, that has been mentioned in verses 11 and 14. He knows they have the Spirit uh, and uh, a future inheritance uh, that he's just mentioned because 
He sees evidence of it in their lives. And that's the second part of the fuel uh, for his prayer. Look at verse 15. For this reason, and that means because you have been sealed with the Spirit who guarantees your inheritance. For that reason, and I also having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So the evidence of their being filled with the Spirit... Uh, is that they have faith in Christ and love toward all the saints. And people have been talking to Paul about it. He's heard about it. He's heard a report of their, their faith and the love that they are demonstrating. A life of true faith and love towards others is a, is a direct result of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. The Holy Spirit has invaded the person's life, uh, has regenerated their hearts, has granted them faith, which is a gift of God, as it says in the next chapter, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Uh, they have been given this uh, faith, and it's exhibiting itself in actions, specifically love, love towards the saints, he says. So Paul knows that they're filled with the Spirit because he sees evidence of it, or at least he hears about the evidence of it in their lives. And what Paul is praying, Paul wants that to continue and become greater, and therefore he lifts this prayer up for them. It's a great prayer for us to pray for ourselves as individuals and for ourselves as a church, and for the church universal, for that matter. Let's break it down. I've got two points. First is the main request that is included in this prayer, and then the three specifics pertaining to that main request. The main request is that they would get continued enlightenment by the Spirit. They've been filled with the Spirit. The Spirit has come into their lives. They've been, they've been saved. They've been granted saving faith. But he wants them to grow in that faith. Verse 17 says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. First he talks about the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. As I said before, they already have the Spirit according to verses 13 to 14. What Paul is praying for is that the Spirit would continue to work in them, giving them a deeper growth in their understanding of wisdom and revelations. Re revelation singular. Christians have God's Word. They have His revelation. Uh, this is God's revealed will to us. It's God's Word. Everything that He wants us to know, He's given to us in His Word. He's revealed it to us. God's wisdom is revealed there. And the work of the Spirit is to lead us into truth, to help us grasp God's Word, to apply it to our lives, and to be shaped and molded by that Word. Paul is praying that they would grow in their understanding of wisdom and revelation so that they will know God better. Not just a head knowledge, not simply facts about God, but wisdom about God. Wisdom is knowledge of the truth plus life experience. Wisdom uh, is having the highest goals and knowing the best means to get to those goals. So the highest goal, the ultimate goal, is to know and glorify God. Well, how do you do that? Well, we want the Spirit to help us understand the Scripture, 
and to understand what it says there and to apply it to our lives, to live it out, to follow his commandments, to, to, to do his will. For example, we, we would all love to have wisdom with money. Uh, first of all, wisdom about money is knowing the place money should have in your life, to have wisdom about it, to, to put it in its proper place. Not as important as our materialistic culture tends to make it, but to put it in its proper place and how to handle that money the best way to the glory of God. See, the, the Spirit will help us do that. And, and that's maybe one of the things that Paul was praying about for the Ephesians. But it, but it encompasses much more than money every phase of life. Uh, how do we live it for God? How do we know God's will? How do, we, how do we know what God's want? Well, we've got the Word. We need the Spirit to help us apply it to our lives. We need a, a supernatural act. We need the supernatural power in us to mold us and change us and shape us because we can't do it ourselves. We can't change ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We need the Spirit to do it. This wisdom and revealing of the truth requires the Spirit to do something. And he describes it as, this is the second thing he says, to have the eyes of your heart enlightened. You know, we need this spirit of wisdom and revelation. Uh, but it's further described as having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Now, we don't usually refer to as our heart having eyes. Our heads are the ones with the eyes. But Paul is really uh, pointing to our main problem when he talks about uh, the eyes of the heart. Our hearts are, are blinded, as it were. Uh, it's not just our minds that are blinded. Our hearts are blinded. We don't think the right way. We don't feel the right way. We don't, uh, we don't do the right thing because of our sin. We have a heart problem. We're not naturally disposed to the truth about God. In fact, we are biased against it. We need a supernatural invasion of our heart by the Holy Spirit so that he can change the wrong disposition of our hearts. And that's what Paul is praying for. Yes, they've been saved. They've had a, a change in the principle within their hearts. They are new creations in Christ. The Spirit is taking up residence there, as he does for all Christians. And he's continuing to do this work. He's beginning a work, and he's causing us uh, to, to have a deeper grasp of the things of God. The eyes of our hearts are being enlightened. We're, we're able to understand God's truth, His wisdom, and His revelation better, and better able to live it out through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that's what Paul is praying for, that the Spirit would continue to convince us of the truth of God's Word, because we don't. Indeed, we cannot accept it without the Spirit's intervention. What a great prayer to pray. So he wants us to understand something. He wants the, he wants the Spirit to enlighten us, to give us wisdom and revelation. Uh, he want, and, in, and then he gives us specifically what he wants us to know. Three things about God. That brings me to the second point. Three specifics pertaining to this main request. Three things about which he wants the Spirit to enlighten us. First, he has, gives us three phrases, and they, they build on one another, and they're connected to one another. First of all, to know the hope to which he has called us, it says in verse 18. He wants, Paul is praying, that we would have this enlightenment, this understanding, that we would grow in our understanding of the hope 
that God has called us to. What is hope? We talk about hope a lot uh, in the Christian faith, and, and sometimes we can just, just uh, talk about it and not really think about the implications of it. We use the term hope in daily life, and we use it in several different ways. First of all, we might express, express hope as the desire for something good in the future. I hope I get a really great Christmas present this year. A new car would be nice. Uh, that's my hope. Secondly, sometimes we express hope as the good thing in the future that we are desiring. It is our hope that our children will all be home for Christmas this year. The children being home for Christmas is the object of our hope. And then sometimes we express hope as the reason why our hope might indeed come to pass. We might say, encountering no traffic is our only hope of getting there on time. See, in other words, having no traffic in our way is the reason we may in fact achieve what we desire, getting there on time. Encountering no traffic is our only hope. So hope is used in three sentences, three senses, a desire for something good in the future, the thing in the future that we desire, and the basis for thinking that our desire may indeed be fulfilled. But for the most important feature, uh, but the most important feature of Christian hope is not present in any of these. These are the ordinary ways that we use the word hope. Christian hope is quite different from these. When we use the word hope, we express uncertainty rather than certainty in everyday life. You know, think about things. I, I hope I get a car this year. Well, that's not likely going to happen. It's, it's definitely uncertain. I'm probably not going to get a new car for Christmas. Uh, when we say, uh, I hope that our, our hope is that our children will be home for Christmas. Well, there's the chance that they might not be. They may have some other plans. Uh, we don't know if they will, but that's our desire. Encountering no traffic is our only hope of getting there on time means, you know, that, that it, you know, encountering no traffic would bring us our desired goal, but we can't be sure the, the, those things are out of our control. So ordinarily, when we express hope, we're doing it out of uncertainty. But this is not how the Bible uses the word hope. The distinctive biblical meaning of hope is not just a desire for something good in the future, but rather biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future uh, biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, it expects it to happen. And it's not just wishful thinking. It is confident that it will happen. It is certain that it will happen because it has been promised by God. That is how the Bible uses hope. When we talk about a hope, we're not talking about wishful, wishful thinking. Biblical hope is, is uh, based on the certainty that God will bring about what he's promised. The Bible talks about hope as an anchor for the soul. If hope was uncertainty, then it can't be an anchor. Uh, or, you know, an uncertain hope is like an anchor that's, that's not tied to the boat. Uh, I had some friends who, they were in the habit of always going fishing with their father, and, and uh, the father stopped buying anchors because they would always forget to have the, the anchor tied to the boat and they'd end up throwing the anchor overboard, and of course it sank to the bottom. So he started filling up uh, metal pails with concrete, coffee cans with concrete, uh, and using those as anchors, because it was cheap, 
and uh, if they forgot to tie to the boat, it would, they would, they would uh, not lose much money. But anchors are expensive. The Bible talks about hope as an anchor, a certainty, something that you can depend on, and it, and it holds you tight. In Hebrews 6, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. So see, he talks about it in the most certain of terms. We're looking forward to that. That's our hope. It's going to happen in the future, and we're living for that. We're looking forward to that certainty. That's biblical hope. It's not an uncertainty. It's not wishful thinking. Hope. The question for Christians is not, will I get what I hope for? But when will I get what I hope for? Christian who has his hope set on God will see his hopes fulfilled without a doubt. We just don't know when it's going to happen. If we hope in this life, if it's all uh, set in the here and now, as Paul says, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. We've got something great to look forward to, a hope, something that's certain. And he describes it for us in the second thing that he says. The second thing he wants us to know. To know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What are these, what are these riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Well, the New Testament talks about believers inheriting eternal life. Uh, it also talks about believers inheriting the kingdom of God. It also speaks of believers being heirs of the kingdom and fellow heirs with Christ or joint heirs with Christ. And one day Christ will have a kingdom. Uh, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is one that will, 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 it has no end. And we are heirs of that kingdom, joint heirs with Christ. What a great privilege it is. That is our hope. This glorious inheritance of eternal life in the kingdom of God for eternity is our hope, our certain promised eternity. It is where God is taking all of history. This future is what we live for in the present, not for the present. We don't live just for the present. We live for the future in the present. And this changes our perspective on things when you think about our future hope. It tends to reroute all your priorities when you live for that hope. And we're not living for the here and now and for money or for success or fame. We're looking forward to what God has promised us, that great inheritance that we have. It changes you. In Hebrews 10, there's a, there's a little anecdote told about the people, uh, the, these Hebrews to whom the writer of Hebrews is, is communicating. He tells them to recall, he says, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, there's that word again, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. Obviously fellow Christians who were in prison. They became partners in their suffering because they, they had to go visit them. Jesus said, you know, uh, blessed are those who, who have come and visited me in prison in Matthew 25. Visited me when I was sick, fed the hungry, etc. 
For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So when it comes to obeying God's directive, uh, to visit those in prison, to, to do God's will, they knew that they were going to suffer. While they were off visiting those in si- prison, identifying themselves as Christian with those who, were being th- who had been thrown in jail for being Christians, well, those who were opposed to the church and to Christianity went behind them and, and took all their stuff while they were gone, plundered their property because they were Christians. They knew it was going to happen, but they obeyed God anyway because it tells us that they knew they had a better possession and an abiding one. What God has promised is better than all the possessions you have now. What God has promised will last forever as opposed to the things that we pursue now the material possessions, uh, the job promotions. Those things are going away. But what God has promised, that inheritance that he's, that he's laid up for us, is better than anything this world has to offer, and it lasts forever. He goes on to tell these, these Hebrews, Therefore, you know you've got this possession, you know it's going to abide forever. Do not, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that you have, when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You know, having that future perspective helps you obey God in the present. Because you know, even if you suffer for it, for obeying God, you have this inheritance. You have something greater that you're living for. Something that you're looking forward to. You, and it gives you endurance in the hard things of life. And then Paul, thirdly, really brings it home. We've got this hope. We've got this inheritance. And the third thing I'm praying that you would know is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. These promises, this inheritance, is backed by the power of God. It is certain and secure because God's power is going to secure it. It is the same power, verse 20 says, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his, right, at, the, at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. That's some power right there. Power that can raise Jesus from the dead. Power that could, uh, could cause him to be ascended to the heavenly places at the right hand of the Father This is the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the power that abides in believers. That's the power that's going to secure us for eternity. It's going to be sure that that which we hope in, that inheritance is promised to us, will be delivered and that we will be preserved to actually enjoy it. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you if you are a believer today. That's exciting. That's something to to be uh, thankful for. And hopefully we can grasp that and to know that. Hope is not wishful thinking. God has an inheritance for the Christian and we can be certain that we will get it because the greatest power in the universe, in fact the power that created the universe, is working in us to ensure that we get it. That's why Paul can confidently say to the Philippians uh, that, that he who began a good work in you will complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. 
It's sure. It's certain. It's a hope that is an anchor for the soul. It gives us endurance. It gives us resolve to live for Christ in the here and now, thinking about what is to come. It flies in the face of our culture. You know, we like it now. We want all the things now. You know, we like fast food. You know, we, uh, I, I always, uh, when I go, I, I kind of laugh, and I think about these things. When I'm in the line at McDonald's, and, you know, the line gets long, and people start honking their horns. I mean, it's fast food, people. You couldn't cook a hamburger that fast at, at your home, so stop being impatient. You, you'll get it. But that's what our culture is set up to, to act like. We, we want it now. We want immediate pleasure. We want immediate, immediately uh, have what we want to have. And we're not used to uh, deferred blessings. We're not used to delayed gratification. But God has promised us the greatest delayed gratification uh, that this world can even know. This world can't know it because it's seen nothing like it uh, since sin has come into the world. I've given you one last passage, an inscription of praise to God, and I'll, I'll end there as we come to the Lord's table. But Peter says exactly the same thing uh, in the beginning of his first letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Those two passages, Ephesians 1, 15-23, 1 Peter 1, 3-5, are saying exactly the same thing. And praise be to God for it. Let's pray together.